Will you pray with me? Our Father, as we come to think about the generous gifts you've given us by your Spirit, please help us to think your thoughts after you. In Jesus' name. Amen. So what page are we on in the books? Page 18, you'll find an outline, The Gifts of the Spirit. I'm not quite sure why, but I quite often get asked the question, do you believe in spiritual gifts? It's a question that, frankly, makes me a little bit uncomfortable. It's often asked, I I think, it feels like it's some sort of test. People aren't asking me because they're curious. They're asking me because they've got a strong opinion already. They want to work out whether I fit with their opinion. But it troubles me as well because it raises heaps of issues in my mind that don't get resolved easily. One is, are they making a distinction between spiritual gifts and sort of natural abilities? Are spiritual gifts only supernatural things that you get from God after conversion or is it simpler than that? And what do they mean by believing? Do I believe they exist? Do I believe that God gives gifts or are they asking, do I use them? Do I encourage them? And behind the question is often, I suspect, I'm not sure, but I suspect is a sort of historical reconstruction of what's happened in the history of Christianity. That spiritual gifts were active in the New Testament church then they got lost for 1900 years and then rediscovered in about 1900 or so or if you're from a different branch of it in the 1960s and finally we've sort of got a New Testament church again because we've got spiritual gifts. It seems to imply there are two sorts of churches today, those with spiritual gifts and those without. So... A question like, do you believe in spiritual gifts? It, it, it feels like I'm being asked, when did I stop beating my wife? Whatever I answer is going to be the wrong answer. Well, against that background of the interest and the current interest in spiritual gifts, it's interesting that in the New Testament, the phrase spiritual gift only occurs once. You probably won't guess where it is. Is this going to go forward? Let me turn it on. Then it might go forward. Here we go. This is in Romans chapter 1. Paul, uh, writing to the, the Christians in Rome, says, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. It's a strange sort of spiritual gift because it's not an ability, it's an effect, something that will strengthen them in their faith. You might say, hold on, Timothy, doesn't 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 1 start with spiritual gifts? No, it actually doesn't. The translators sometimes say that, but it's simply the word spirituals or spiritual things, not spiritual gifts. Just to give you a little bit of uh, a lesson in um, linguistics, there are two words we're talking about here. I'll give you the Greek words, at least in English, and you'll sort of get the feel from I think. One of them is charismata. Uh, some of you know people called charis or charis. That, that's the word in Greek, gift. A present. You give somebody a present, you'd call it a gift, a charismata. And that's a word that's used. It's used in our passage in 1 Corinthians 12 in verse 4. There are different kinds of gifts. But it's also used in the New Testament of all sorts of things. It's used of salvation. That is a gift from God. It's used of singleness and marriage. They are gifts from God. The word spiritual, though, as it occurs in verse 1 of chapter 12 in in 1 Corinthians, is this word pneumatikos. It's actually got the word spirit in it, and it's a it's an adjective, adjective describing word, like red chair, red. 
It, it, it's describing other things, and it's, uh, it's talking about spiritual things or spiritual people. We're not quite sure in 1 Corinthians 12 whether it's spiritual things. More likely, I think, spiritual people. What makes you a spiritual person? That's the contentious issue that they're writing to Paul about and Paul is trying to answer. What we're going to do tonight is do this quick helicopter tour of 1 Corinthians chapters 12 to 14. Very important extended discussion by the Apostle Paul about gifts and the Spirit and the gifts that the Spirit gives. We're not going to do everything in detail, but in chapter 14... Uh, Paul discusses tongues and prophecy, and we, we'll get there and we'll talk a little bit about those things. But just before we do that, I want to set this against the background of what we've been discovering this week. What is God doing in our world? Where is he going? Well, he's saving and transforming a people of his own. Taking dead people and raising them, condemned people and forgiving them, taking them from slaves in darkness to light and freedom. Having chosen them before the creation of the world, he's adopted them into his family, redeemed them through Jesus to form a people. He's taken them from being in the flesh to being in the spirit because he puts his spirit in us to transform us to be holy and blameless children of God. And it's not just individuals he does that to. He's uniting a people under Jesus. We've seen that his plan is to bring everything together, united under Christ. He's already doing that by bringing you and I together to be part of his church, united by Christ, whether we're Jews or Gentiles, Curtin students or Murdoch students, whether we win or lose at soccer, he unites us under Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit is central to that enterprise. The Holy Spirit, uh, uh, sorry, we've seen three powerful images, realities, about the work that God's Spirit does to unite us as the people of God. One is we're the temple of God. Remember Ephesians chapter 2? Uh, sorry, let's go back. Temple. Uh, in Christ, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Uh, a, a metaphoric building where each brick is bricked in to the, to the one building, and the Holy Spirit dwells in each brick, but therefore dwells in all of us together, or a family. Ephesians 2, verse 20, uh, 18, it is actually, um, for through Christ we both have access to the Father as children by one Spirit, by the same Spirit. We each know God personally as Father, but it's the same Father, and so together we become brothers and sisters. But also body, and this comes up in this passage we're looking at tonight, 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul likens us together to a human body. Just as a body though has many, uh, is one, though it has many parts, its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ, for we were all baptised by one spirit, so as to form one body. Your body has different organs, doesn't it? Some of them are nice and presentable. Others you'd like to keep behind clothes. That's why winter's nice. But they all form one body. We're not just a collection of organs. You don't just sort of throw in an arm and a, and a leg and, and get a, a heart from somewhere else. There's something organically unified about each and every body, isn't there? Every cell in your body shares the same DNA. And so it is that we as a body share the same spirit, the same spiritual DNA that is the Holy Spirit of God. 
that binds us together as one organic body. And God created this new people through Jesus and in Jesus. Jesus is our saviour, Jesus is our head, and by his spirit, by the power and presence at work in us by his spirit, God is building this people towards maturity, towards being more and more like Christ, extending his people as the spirit regenerates, baptises them into his people, strengthening us as the spirit illuminates and bears fruit in our lives, uniting us as his people. So, let's come to 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. The topic, as we've seen in chapter 12, verse 1, is about spiritual things. Now about spiritual things, spiritual people, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be ignorant. Now, the Corinthian church is one that had all sorts of issues. And they sent this question to Paul about spiritual things. Not sure exactly what the question was, but Paul spends three chapters on his answer. And it's important that you read all three chapters because if you just pick up one of it, you haven't actually heard his answer. You've just heard a little bit of the discussion. We need to follow the whole thing. By the time we get to chapter 14, a couple of things are very clear. One is that Paul and the Corinthians are on a collision course when it comes to gifts of the Spirit and church. The second thing is that the Corinthians think that they are spiritual because they speak in tongues. That's the thing, the key thing for many of the people in that church, speaking in tongues. That really matters to them. They think it marks them out as being spiritual. Chapter 12 begins as a gentle corrective to where they're starting from. Profound but quite gentle. He begins by saying, the real test of the work of the Spirit is not whether you speak in tongues or anything else like that. It's not any gift at all. It's whether you confess, whether you believe that Jesus is Lord. And at this point, he's already on a different track to the Corinthians. If spiritual is about the gifts and how you use them, particularly the more spectacular ones, Paul's saying, no, it's about Jesus. And I hope by this stage in the week, you're on track with Paul. You're cheering for him. He's got it right, hasn't he? Because the Spirit is the floodlight. The Spirit is that light that shines on Jesus day in and day out, drawing people to Jesus, showing people the truth and reality and the brilliance and the wonder of Jesus. And so the foundation of anything that is spiritual, truly spiritual, is the recognition, the belief, the commitment that Jesus is Lord. And then he moves on to gifts. And he says in verse 4, there's different kinds of gifts. They're great variety, but it's the same spirit that distributes them. And then he moves to describe it differently. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. You serve the same Lord. He's moved now from the spirit to who? To Jesus, hasn't he? And he's used the word serving. And serving is the most mundane word you can come up with. What's serving? Well, serving is just putting the chairs out. Serving is picking up bits of paper left on the ground. It's, it, it's as wide and mundane as you could ever come up with. And then thirdly, he says different kinds of working. But all of them and everyone is the same God at work. There's a unity to it. But now he talks about God, that is God the Father. This is the Trinity all at work. And now he's got to, not gifts, but effects, what God achieves through you in his world, which could be Again, as as wide as the ocean. Do you notice what he's done? They're talking about gifts of the Spirit. And Paul wants to say, you can't do that. If you've got a gift, it's not just from the Spirit. 
It's Jesus and the Father there as well, because all their works are one. There's no thing that's just the Spirit at work. It's always the whole Trinity at work. Anything that God does has every member of the Trinity at work. But he's also broadened it from gifts, which brings particular things to mind, capacities I've got, to something much, much broader than that. Any activity that you might do, any effect, whether you meant it or not, that God worked in and through you, that's good. That's all part of the game, part of the picture. And then in verses 7 to 11, he pushes a little bit further about these gifts and capacities. Verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To the one is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom, another a message of knowledge, by means of the same Spirit, to another faith, another gifts of healing, another miraculous powers. Now, it's quite difficult to know what these things are. Paul doesn't tell us. What's a, what is the message of, of wisdom? You could think it's a sudden insight into great wisdom, but actually he's used the same phrase back in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians to talk about the gospel is the message of wisdom, God's wisdom and power. Is that, that what he means? Well, I'm not quite sure. I don't think we can tell because he doesn't tell us, does he? And it's dangerous just to import what I think it means and assume that Paul means the same. But he's saying there's a breadth to these things. The Spirit distributes them broadly. No one has them all. We all have different things. And the Spirit decides who gets what, verse 11. They're all the work of the one the same Spirit and he distributes them to each just as he determines. It's not your choice what you get. You can't take any credit for it. It doesn't make you more spiritual than any others that you have this gift, not that gift. And they're all for the common good, not for self-promotion, but for the common good. And then in verses 12 to 20, he starts to use this metaphor, this picture of the body. You've all been baptised by the same spirit to form one body. And the body has all these different parts, all these different organs that make up the body. And he imagines, well, he actually describes some of the things that's happening in the Corinthian church. Verse 15, the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. You know, I don't have five fingers with an opposable thumb, is what the foot's saying. So I'm no good. I, I don't really belong. I can't contribute to this body. And Paul says, don't be stupid. You shouldn't feel inferior. Just to, and and he, he sort of sends up the whole idea. He says, what if the whole body was an eye? Can you imagine that? One gigantic eyeball. That's what your body was. It'd be bizarre, wouldn't it? And it wouldn't function. It would die very quickly. How stupid to think that just because you're not the same as the hand, you don't belong to the body. Our differences are necessary in order to make a body. Or in verse 21, he picks up the opposite uh, danger. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Parts we think of less honourable, we treat with special honour. He addresses those who think they're superior and independent, their arrogant self-sufficiency. I've got all I need in me. I don't need you. And Paul says, rubbish. Don't be stupid. Of course you need each other. God has made us different. God has distributed the gifts around so you do need one another. So you're forced to be dependent on each other. Now, for some of us, that's quite uncomfortable. We don't like being dependent on others. We pride ourselves in being self-sufficient. God has designed us differently. He's purposely kept back some gifts from you 
so that you need others, so that we form one body, one interdependent body. How do you think about yourself, especially in relation to your fellow Christians, your brothers and sisters in your church, for example? I think most of us tend to think of ourselves as sort of we're attenders, where we go along and if it works for us, that's nice, we'll keep going. But that's a different picture to Paul and his understanding. This was really brought home to me a few years ago when I I met a a guy from Cameroon. For those who don't know, Cameroon's in sort of the middle of Africa. I met him at a conference, international conference. Um, He's black African, black as black. He's got a smile to sort of see him in the dark. Um, And and he only spoke French. He didn't speak English, so we had to get a translator. But we sat down and, and chatted through a translator for a little while. And I asked him, have you been back to Cameroon recently? He said, no, but I'm going next month. He worked in the embassy in Paris for Cameroon. Um, I said, oh, good, what are you going to do when you you go home? He said, well, I'm actually going home for a family conference. All my parents, my siblings, my aunts and uncles, all all my cousins will be at, at the conference and I'm going there. I said, that sounds fantastic. I'm glad you get to catch up with your family. What are you going to do at the conference? Like, my family doesn't have conferences. He said, "Um, we're going to decide what to do with my salary. And I did a bit of a double take. And I said, well, what do you mean? It's your salary, isn't it? He said, no, no, my parents, my uncle actually paid for most of my university education to get my law degree. And now the money that I earn is the family's. So I go back and... We're going to decide, and I think probably what's going to happen is my cousin, my uh, mum's brother's uh, oldest child, um, my salary will help to pay his way through high school and then university, Um, and then there's another cousin uh, who's already at university but she's struggling, Uh, it'll pay for her as well. Do you see how different that is? See, I think if I earn a salary, it's mine. It just goes into my pocket, my bank account. It's all mine, but... Sorry, it's (laughs) Rosie. All my worldly wealth. (laughs) But he thought about himself differently. He belonged to his family. His money belonged to his family. He thought of himself as part of a body. And that's what Paul's saying. God has made us part of a body. He's baptised us by his spirit into one body. That means I belong to the body. I'm not just an organ who sits out there, you know, a heart going kathump, 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 and the rest of the body's over there, me doing my thing. No, the the heart belongs in the body. It only finds its its right place in the body. It's only doing its job when it contributes to the health and life of the whole body. That's what it means to be a body. That's radical, isn't it, for us individualistic Westerners? But he finishes this chapter on quite a jarring note. At the end of chapter 12, verse 27, Now you are the body of Christ, and each of you is a part of it, is a member of it, belongs to the body. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of uh, helping, guidance, and different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? And the answer is, no, they're not. Uh, are all uh, sorry? Are, are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? No, no, no. Do all have gifts of healing? No. Do all speak in tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. Now eagerly desire the greater gifts. Do you, do you feel the jar in that? He just said we're all interdependent. God has given us different gifts and different capacities, so we'll be dependent on one another, and everyone matters. 
And then he says, well, I can rank the gifts. Apostles, there at the top. Tongues, it's at the bottom. And eagerly desire the greater gifts. Do you feel the jarring note in that? It doesn't seem to make sense, does it? That's sort of like saying the hand is greater than the foot. When we've just sort of been through that, haven't we? How does this work? Well, hang on to that. Of course, we get into chapter 13 then, where Paul suddenly launches into this lyrical chapter on love. You know 1 Corinthians 13, don't you? Let's start reading it. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but don't have love, I'm a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and have faith that can move mountains but don't have love, I'm zero. If I give all I possess to the poor and hand over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Well, what's it doing here? Why did Paul suddenly go all romantic? What do, what, what, sentimental? No, it's not about that at all. If you notice, chapter 12 finishes with eagerly desire the greater gifts. Chapter 14 begins, follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. It's sort of like it just goes straight on. This must be about the same topic. It must still be about gifts and church and all that we're talking about. The clue, I think, is chapter 12, verse 31, the second part of it. The beginning, in a, section, in a sense, of this section, I'll show you the most excellent way. I'll show you the way par excellence, if you know French, which I don't. <laughs> what is this most excellent way? Well, he starts by talking about the importance of love. You might have the greatest, most impressive gifts in the world, but if you don't have love, you're totally useless. You're just empty noise. You're a, a racket and nothing else, which is striking, isn't it? Because when we're going to appoint a new treasurer for our CU committee, what do we look for? Jim, we, we start by looking for gifts, don't we? Are they doing accounting? But Paul would say, no, always start by asking, do they love? That's more important. It's good if they can do accounting as well, but start with, do they love? And I guess the obvious way to take verses 1 to 3 is to, is to say, well, what he's saying is, if I've got gifts but I don't have love, that, that's terrible. So what I need to do is use my gifts with love. Like you might say to somebody with a chainsaw that looks a bit dangerous, please use your chainsaw with care. And then he moves on to the character of love in verses 4 to 7, the bit that most of us probably know semi by heart. Love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy. He doesn't define love here. He just describes it. He assumes you know what love is. And if you're a Christian, you do, don't you? This is love. Not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. There is pure, unadulterated, transparent love, isn't it? That he would send his son to be the sacrifice for our sins. If you've got an inkling at all of what Jesus has done, you know what love is. And now he he describes some of the things that, that that is and He describes it in action. It sort of doesn't work in English. Love is patienting. Love is kinding. It it, it works out, actually, in your behaviour. Do you see how similar this is to the fruit of the Spirit? He, He says love is, and then he describes all the rest of the fruit of the Spirit. This is symmetry again, isn't it? So you can't have love without patience and all the other things that are part of this character, 
whose heart is love. And in case you didn't notice, it's just like Jesus, isn't it? Jesus is patient and kind. He doesn't envy, he doesn't boast. That's where we've seen it. But there is something strange about this paragraph. I don't know whether you picked it up as I read it to you. Did you notice how negative it was? Love is patient and kind. And then everything else is it's not this. It's not boastful. It's not resentful. It's not... Why is so negative in the way he describes it? And then in verses 8 to 13, he talks about the superiority of love. Love never fails. Where there are prophecies, they'll cease. Where there are tongues, they'll be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it'll pass away, all these gifts. Now we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away childhood uh, behind me. For now we see only in reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even I'm fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope and love, but the greatest is love. He contrasts gifts which are only temporary, only ephemeral, with love, which is eternal. What will the age to come be like? Love will permeate everything in the age to come. It will be the shape and the heartbeat of every relationship and every action in the age to come. It will be wonderful, won't it? It's the permanent experience of the Spirit's work, this sort of love. But it's sort of strange, isn't it? Why the contrast? Why does he talk as if you've got to choose between gifts or love? Well, because that's his point, actually. You do. What he's not doing is saying, use your gifts with love. Because you wouldn't contrast them then, would you? If I'm saying, use your chainsaw with care, I don't then contrast chainsaws and being careful. That's just a silly thing to do. But what he's saying to the Corinthians is there is actually a choice. There is, there's a way you're doing things and thinking about things which is not the right way. It's not the way par excellence. He's contrasting the way of gifts and the way of love. This is really a revolution. Because the Corinthian way of thinking about church, thinking about themselves, is the way of gifts. They start with the question, what gift do I have? What gifts have I got? And when can I use them? Will I be given opportunity to use them? Is it this a trendy gift to use and people will notice if I use it? That is, gifts starts with me, doesn't it? It looks inward at me and says, what have I got? What God's given me? And what's the result of that way, that approach? Well, it's not hard to see that it results in things like jealousy and resentment and insisting on your own way. That's why he says love is not jealous. Love is not resentful. Love does not insist on its own way because that's what gifts do. But the way of love is different, isn't it? The way of love doesn't start with me. Where does it start? It starts with you, doesn't it? It starts with others. The way of love looks outward, not inward. It starts with you. And if I start with you and what you need and what will be good for you, it'll be a totally different way of approaching this whole question of gifts a whole different way of approaching the question of how we relate to one another, how we be a body together. And it really is a revolution. Somebody did some research recently about seminary students in the US. Seminaries are theological colleges, people training for Christian ministry and missionary work. And what they worked out was that in the 1960s, 
the main motivation for, the, for seminary students, the way they expressed it was things like, I want to serve Jesus. I see the needs of the world. I want to meet those needs. By the 1990s, the answers were more like these. I want to use my gifts. I want to feel fulfilled in my life. Did you hear the difference? They're very different, aren't they? One expresses the way of love. The other expresses a change of culture, a change of Christian culture to a way of gifts. And that's a revolution I suspect all of us need to have and continue having day by day and year by year. In chapter 14, Paul applies that revolution to the question at hand of gifts. If you understand chapter 13, in some sense chapter 14 is superfluous, but we'll do a quick tour anyway, because it gets us into talking about tongues and prophecy and we shouldn't avoid doing that. So he begins chapter 14 by saying, follow the way of love, the way par excellence. And still, and, and that, that doesn't mean you don't want gifts, but it does shape the gifts that you want. Eagerly desire gifts, especially prophecy. Verse 2, for anyone who speaks in a tongue doesn't speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves. But the one who prophesies edifies the church. I'd like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I'd rather that you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be edified. Do you see the basis on which he can rank the gifts? Some are actually better than others. Why? Because they express love. They build up others. The way of love leads Paul to favour prophecy over tongues. Now, just to get our heads into what Paul's doing, we need to spend just a couple of minutes thinking about what, he, what are tongues and what is prophecy. Now, the word tongues here is just the normal word for languages. Now, we talk about having a mother tongue or a second tongue. It's the same, uh, same uh, form of speech uh, in Greek. And we're told here that tongues can be interpreted. That is, they're not mere gibberish. They have some content to it. Somehow, that can be discerned and interpreted. But we're told in verse 14, just to skip ahead a little bit, he says, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. He seems to be pointing to a dislocation a dissociation between mind and spirit. You can speak in tongues without knowing what you're speaking yourself. It may seem to be mere gibberish. I think chapter 13, verse 1, when he says, if I speak in the tongue of, tongues of men or angels, indicates that some people at least believe that tongues, this, whatever it was, this gift, was speaking in the, the languages of angels, unknown languages to humans. And he says in verse 2 that tongues are addressed to God. They could be praise or prayer, but they're essentially towards God. Now, most of us are probably aware that tongues are a pretty contentious issue amongst Christians at the moment in the last hundred years or so, mainly because of the rise of Pentecostalism and the emphasis that Pentecostalism has had on tongues. Are the tongues today the same as Corinth that Paul was describing in the first century? Well, it's really hard to know, actually. How do you research that? How do you work it out? There has been some research done on tongues, and it's the only way I can think of to do the research. I can tell you about it later if you like, which concludes, I think rightly, that they're probably different things. But what about prophecy? 
Uh, we're told in verse 3 that prophecy is addressing people, not God, for their strengthening, encouragement and comfort. Well, that covers a lot of things, doesn't it? It does say it's words. It's words that people can understand. It's intelligible. The speaker can understand what they're saying. The hearer can understand what the speaker is saying. In verses 29 to 31, let me quickly look there. He says, two or three prophets should speak. The others should weigh carefully what's said. If a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone might be instructed and encouraged. The spirit of prophets is subject to the control of prophets. God's not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations. We see there that prophecy can come by revelation, which sounds a little sort of spooky, doesn't it? What's revelation? Well, actually, I don't think it's that spooky at all. So I presume you've had this experience. You're sitting maybe in a Bible study group with some friends at uni and you're trying to nut out a passage and suddenly you think, actually, I reckon this is about Jesus, maybe. (laughs) And others in the group say, no, that's stupid. Or they might say, yeah, actually, I I think that's right. That, that, That makes sense of what this bit of the Bible say. Well, that's revelation, isn't it? Something came to you that you didn't have before. That happens to me regularly. happens in most of the groups I'm in from time to time. It fits everything that Paul says here. Is it prophecy? I'm not quite sure. It fits that sense that it needs to be weighed. It's, It's fallible. It needs to be weighed up to see whether it really does carry uh, any value or not. But I want to say to you at this point, you don't need to know what tongues or prophecy were back then. The principles that Paul enunciates in these chapters with the illustration of tongues of prophecy apply to any and all gifts, any abilities you might think about. Paul will rank the abilities, the gifts. Some are greater than others. What's the test? How do you compare and rank them? Well, it's very clear that Paul's test is edification. Does the gift, when it's used, build up the church? So in verse 5, Uh, he says, I'd rather, uh, 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 I'd like all of you to speak in tongues, but I'd rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues so that the church may be edified. So he says in verse 6, if I come with a a, a tongue, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy, a word of instruction, that is something that you can understand. I won't be any good to you. I, I won't edify you. Verse 12, So it is with you, since you're eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. He's using a metaphor of construction from building sites. You you build an edifice, and so the word can be edifies, exactly the same word as build. It's just a, a different way of translating it. It's a word you've come across in Ephesians. Remember Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 12 and 13, where Jesus gives the gifts of apostles, prophets, uh, pastors, evangelists and teachers, evangelists, pastors and teachers, to equip God's people for works of service for the building of the body of Christ until we reach maturity, the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. It's the idea of building a building, and building a building involves extending it, new people being included in it, the building getting bigger, but also has the idea of strengthening what is there. In this case, strengthening people in faith and love and holiness, in the fruit of the Spirit and the effect of the Spirit in their lives. It means building in and building up. How do you do that in Ephesians 4? Well, primarily by speaking the truth in love. The love asks, what helps people? What is good for them? 
At one level, there's multiple answers to that, aren't there? Lots of things are good for them. Just a pat on the back and everything's fine, I'm your friend, here's something to eat. Those things are good for them, aren't they? But what is really good for them? What will last for eternity that's good for them? Edifying them, building them up in Christ, helping them to come to know Christ if they don't know him, and growing in their faith and love and hope as people who do know him. That's what will last for eternity. That's the ultimate good for them. And some gifts can do it and some can't. Some gifts are terrific at doing it. Some are hopeless. Prophecy can do it, says Paul, but tongues can't do it. Therefore, he says, don't use gifts that don't edify. But seek to use the gifts that can edify. And therefore, he can rank the gifts, the ones that are better at edifying. They're greater. They're better. They're the ones to go for. They're the ones to use. And he gives us a little bit more information. What conditions are there to edification? And again, his answer is quite clear. Have a look at verse 9. So it is with you, unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? You'll just be speaking into the air. Intelligibility is central and crucial. Intelligibility is about making sense to the mind, addressing the mind, affecting the mind, bringing understanding and change to the mind. Excuse me. And what he says is that tongues, without interpretation, can't edify. Now, tongues may impress people. They may get blown away. Imagine that, that somebody can do such a fantastic thing. They might excite everyone. They may be emotionally exhilarating. But Paul says they don't edify, they can't edify because they're not intelligible. There's no content to it that people understand. Now, friends, we must understand this. Because we tend to equate edification with emotion. If I come out feeling excited and pumped, I must have been edified, I must have been built up. But Paul says, no, unless there's actual content to it, you haven't been edified. The gospel is a message to be understood and believed not a feeling to be generated. The gospel does generate feelings. Please don't mishear me. But just generating feelings is not edification. It must actually address the mind. It must go through your understanding to edify you. The only thing that truly edifies is the truth of Jesus, is the word of the gospel, is knowing and grasping, as we've seen, for example, in Ephesians chapter 3, the height and the depth and the breadth of the love of Jesus. It's grasping that that will start to change you. It's not just feeling something. If you grasp that, you will feel something. But you grasp it first and foremost with your mind. It must be intelligible. And so he says, earnestly desire the gifts that edify. Use the gifts that edify. And don't use the ones that don't edify. That is the way of love. That is the way par excellence. So to sum it up in verse 12 of chapter 14, since you're eager for gifts of the Spirit, excel, abound in those that build up the church. Well, let me draw some conclusions. Firstly, about gifts. First thing it says, Gifts, different gifts, are no indication of your spiritual state. Lots of people in Corinth had tongues. 
They were very immature, but they thought they were mature because of them. Secondly, start with love, not gifts. If you like, start with the fruit of the Spirit. That, that, that's where love comes. Because love starts with others, not yourself. It's very countercultural because our culture is so much about self-fulfillment and self-expression, but love is the way of God, isn't it? It's the way of Jesus. It's wonderful when you see it and receive it. If you're not quite sure what to do, don't think about your gifts. Don't worry about what capacity you've got. Just start loving people. Just start serving in ways that are good for them. You'll soon start to work out what things you can do and can't do. And thirdly, as you do know that you have gifts, as you're aware of that, choose to use the gifts that edify. That's what love will always lead you to. Now the reality is, you've got heaps of gifts. God's not stingy. You'd have to be an absolute moron to to have uh, only enough gifts to keep you sort of going for 70 years of life. Now, the gifts and capacity you've got, I presume, are, are, are going to last for eternity. You've got gifts in all sorts of areas. You've got gifts in physical areas. Haven't you? Some of you, if you wanted to, you dedicated yourself to sport, you could actually be quite good at something, couldn't you? If, you might not make the Olympics, but you could get reasonably good, couldn't you? If, if you did it for every day, two hours a day, if you studied hard, you could probably do reasonably well in exams, couldn't you? You've got other skills and capacities. You've got lots of them. And so this, this question of choosing which ones to use is absolutely relevant, isn't it? You've got so many. You can't use them all. You can't develop them all. Did you go to the careers advisory thing sort of towards the end of high school? You, know, you go along and say, well, here's all my results of all the aptitude tests and IQ tests and everything. What can you do? And usually they say you can do anything you like. Fat lot of good that is. <laughs> I've got too many gifts. You have too. Because God's not stingy. He's lavished you with gifts and capacities, which means you've got no choice but to make choices about which ones you will use. And can you see the rub? If you love, you will use the gifts that edify. What are those gifts? Well, if you want to break it down, it's the capacity to string a few words together. It's the capacity to understand ideas and explain them to other people. And you know what? Our country has a method to, to uh, filter in all those people. You know what it's called? Waste. That's what it does, doesn't it? It works out whether you've got the capacity to understand an idea and express it, explain it. That's what exams do. And you're the people who've succeeded. So basically you are the people who have the gifts to edify. Many other Christians don't. They struggle to be able to do that. But most of us can do it, can't we? One of the greatest lies that's been sold to us in Western Christianity, I think, is that God has given us our gifts for our career. And, and that, that comes through in all our secular stuff, but unfortunately it's sort of been baptised by Christians. You're under obligation to use your gifts and capacities for your career. But the Spirit has not given you gifts for your career. He's given you gifts to edify the body of Christ to build the church. That's what they're given to you for. Do you see that? That's a change, isn't it? 
doesn't matter much what job you do. Choose to use the gifts that edify, that build up others. And I hope you've started to see this week just how important the church is to God. Ephesians chapter 1, Jesus has been exalted the right hand of the Father for the church. Do you realise that? For us, so that we can exist under his lordship, so we can be protected from the powers that might threaten us by his victory over them. He died to create the church. The church is God's display to the principalities and powers to the whole universe of his wisdom and brilliance in his plan to unite us by Jesus. The church is the bride of Jesus that one day will be presented to him as his joy and wonder for eternity. The church matters. It's the biggest project in the universe. I don't know whether you're into big projects. I'm into megastructures. You watch any of those TV programs? I'm an engineer by background, so I love them. And every one is about this gigantic structure, whether it's a bridge or a ship or, or a tunnel or whatever it is, and, and, and they take you through the whole building of it from beginning to end, the planning, the design, the, and, and the, the, the thousands and millions of tonnes of concrete that go into it. And they're magnificent projects, and I wish I, I could work on them. I was chatting to one of the graduates of UWA recently who uh, works for one of the uh, resource country, companies in uh, Perth, one of the multinationals, and he was working on one of the LNG, LNG projects up in the Northwest Shelf. And he started to describe to me the magnitude of the project, $15 billion for the processing plant, that you can see something of it up, up there. And he was designing one little bit of it. I think it was a few pipes and, and, and a reservoir. And he was so excited that he was part of this mega project that was going to change the world. Well, actually, it just gives a few bit of energy to China and Japan. That's sort of what it does. Now, that's, that's minuscule compared to the church. That's tiny. It's only going to last for 25 years and it'll all be over. Now, we're part of something that puts that in the shade. The building of the church, the bride of Jesus Christ. Do you get that? And what do you do? Choose. Choose the gifts to use that will build the church. Now, if you can do that, if you're convinced that's what you should be doing, come to Challenge Conference. Because you've got to work out how to do it, don't you? How will I do that? How will I use my life to build the church of Jesus Christ? It does mean making choices about the gifts you will use. And can I say to you, if you love people, if you love Jesus, if you love his church, these are the greatest gifts, the ones that edify. And most of you have them. Please choose to use them. Please choose to excel in using them. As much as you can, for as much as your life, that will build the body of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your marvellous generosity in giving us such variety and richness of giftings and capacities. We thank you for this group of people and all you've endowed us with. And we pray for the love and the wisdom to use what you've given us for the church, the bride of Jesus. Amen.